cultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, Salmon Gutter, Thai prostitute English teacher, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller Sex at Dawn, Christopher Ryan. Sharing awesome tales of doing a hard time for a Snickers bar while teaching us all to live life like a piece of ice on a hot stove, riding its own melting. And now, quietly awaiting my one-way trip to Guantanamo, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and a raised middle finger, Daniel Bellelli. Along with our internet guru, Evan Culver. Away we go. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 9 of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Daniel Bellelli, hello. Here we are. And today we're going to have a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Christopher Ryan. Uh, he has his own podcast. We'll put it in the episode notes. He's a hell of a really fun, stimulating, weird guy. We had a, we really just finished the conversation a couple of minutes ago at a great, great time. We are planning to possibly do another one down yeah. the road with him because it's like we can keep going forever. He's, um, man, you guys are in for a good one today. Uh, a couple of things to take care of business before we get started. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. The Daisy House music, man, every time I listen to that thing, I like it a little more than the time before. Yeah, they and did a great job. I began liking it, so by now I really freaking like it. <laughs> so it's I really like our intro music, so good for them. Uh, and by the way, I think that by now they should have a link where you can download at least this one song and then they're going to have a full album. But we'll, uh, if we have the link, we'll put it in the episode notes. Well, maybe they'll make that the bonus track one day. Yeah, exactly. The Drunken Taoist theme. That's right. The TV track. Yeah. Um, I need to do an MMA fight just in order to have that as the intro music, the walk up to the cage kind of thing. <laughs> but with the wolves howling and everything and the... Um, Let's see, other things we need to take care of. Um, donations, well, we had just recorded the other day, so we, even though they are released two weeks apart, we actually recorded them pretty much back-to-back. So we have one person, Jack Walker, who gently donated in the meantime. We deeply appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. Yep. And um, audiobooks. Today in particular, um, Chris's books, uh, Sex at Dawn, um, is available on audible.com so if you guys have been thinking about giving it a try to audible.com to check out how audiobooks work out it's great because you know you essentially get a free month the uh, first month is free if you decide you like it then you stay on the program and you pay I believe $15 a month which is kind of like the Netflix of audiobooks in a way uh, the difference being that you actually get to keep the, um, the audiobook whereas Netflix they tend to frown upon when you hold on to the discs <laughs> but uh, the, um, so Sex at Dawn if you guys want to check it out through audible.com that would be one way to try it out and um, that's Usara our affiliate sponsor if you guys want hemp gear um, computer bags, uh, backpacks uh, martial art gear, there's all sort of stuff um, that's also is going. the link is available in our notes and then our latest after we had said where we no longer have other affiliate sponsors besides these two guys we, well, I changed my mind because I'm a lying bastard and I realized that it's not even that I'm a lying bastard, I really meant it except that these guys make insanely good chocolate and 
you know, I can say no to chocolate. It's just how it goes. Is uh, so if you guys want to get us, you know, stuff with high alcoholic content tend to get us. Chocolate tend to get us. Items that can be used to kill people, I tend to be fascinated with them. You know, all that kind of thing. But chocolate above all, definitely. So um, Coracao, I believe, Portuguese name. Coracao. Um, Oh man, it's good. And um, you can read all up to it in the sense that on their website they describe quite a bit the process that they go through because their goal was to, these guys are chocolate fanatics, but at the same time they are big on healthy stuff. And usually the two things don't exactly match well. So I was a little scared. Some like healthy chocolate, the fuck? You know, this is gonna be like a tofu burger or something, or that's not gonna work. It does, it really, really does. This episode, I believe, we should be releasing on February 1st, so you guys are still in time if you buy into all the notions such as Valentine's Day or things like that. You have an excuse. Or if you just want good chocolate, that's also a way to go. So we'll put the link on the episode notes and you get 10% discount if you buy from them. If you just use my first name, which is your incentive to actually learn how to spell it, uh, D-A-N-I-E-L-E. So I'm not... Danielle, a woman who doesn't know quite how to spell her own name. I'm not Daniel, but I'm some kind of strange hybrid. That it's a hybrid, yeah, you know, absolutely. Fuck, man, you have no idea how much mail I got from in time addressed to Mrs. Daniele Bolelli, and I'm like, ah, fuck, another one. <laughs> there was one guy, uh, the author of uh, this book called American Holocaust, that totally lost interest in the email exchange we were having once he found out that I wasn't a woman. It was pretty funny. <laughs> It probably actually was something else happened, but I think that's my version because it makes for a cooler story, but that's funny. In any case, so that take care of business. Um, um, Anything else, Rich? No, this is probably my favorite conversation so far. This Today is a good one. Chris is quite quite an incredible guy and he's led a life I think the rest of us should have tried to lead. Oh man, he's, uh, yeah, you guys will, well, you know, without further ado, I guess, let's have him speak for himself because he's one hell of a guy. Okay, guys, episode nine. Uh, here we roll. Um, random story to introduce things. Um, not that it has anything to do with anything, but I feel like telling it, so let's go. Last time I mentioned the Playboy Mansion and UFner and everything. And oddly enough, I actually did go to the Playboy Mansion once. It was a strange experience. I was like 20, 21 or something. I was recruited along with... A gigantic crew of it was a bunch of Mexican workers and me doing hire to do manual labor at the Playboy Mansion before the good old days when uh, when now you know flat screens are actually flat. There was these gigantic freakish monitors that you would have to carry while somebody's whipping you as you <laughs> go along and stuff. So I was like, somebody's pay me to lift some heavy shit and bring it inside a Playboy Mansion. This is heaven. I'm down. You Wait, know. Did you get paid to do this too? Totally. It was beautiful. <laughs> and got to hang out there the whole day and uh, it was like, you can stay for the party and all of that. It was beautiful. The one thing that's bizarre in all of this is that the um, 
the one thing I like the least about the experience were actually the women, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I dig, I dig have taste in everything else. The mansion is awesome. The food was, oh my God, insanely good. The swimming pool, the, it's like tacky beyond belief, but for my taste, not quite tacky enough. I think we could have upped it a few notches more and I would have been even happier. The women, I was like, uh, you know, and not that I have anything against fake boobs, you know, all the power to fake boobs, all the power to real boobs, all the power to any boobs. It's just Mo- all modern medicine. Yeah, all very, very good. <laughs> I was just like, you know, the blonde, look, I don't know, something didn't quite do it for me. But in any case, I was perfectly happy with everything else. Part of the reason why this is um, remotely relevant to today's is because today there's going to be sex, sex, well, Okay, maybe there's not going to be. There's going to be talk about lots of sex. I don't know and about the rest of you, but today was a good morning. Oh. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Oh, by the way, I have some strange... Uh, in case you're in the boot to experiment, I have some strange pills for you that Duncan Trussell oh, yeah. gave me oh. that I figure I'll gently pass along and see what effect they have on you. But um, Placebo will work. Yeah. On that note, the wild man we have with us today, Christopher Ryan, very welcome to The Drunken Taoist, uh, New York Times bestseller author of Sex at Dawn, and um, I hear from Duncan Trussell that you're known as better than Fabio, as in <laughs> not just because of your... Even, uh, even better than even Fabio. Even better than uh, Fabio, uh, because yeah. of his athletic skills between the sheets. Uh, and, uh, that was a long time ago. Hey, uh, yeah. who cares? <laughs> he, even because now, Fabio, m- many people don't know the guy as much anymore. Yeah, it was yeah. cooler a while back, but still, that's, that's, um, there's something to be said about that. So one of the things that uh, we're going to get into discussion of the book, we're going to get into some of the ideas, but before we even get to that point, uh, Chris was telling us before we turned on the mic some wild stories about (laughs) ending up in prison for stealing a sneaker bar, and we just paused Uh, everything and said, no, 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 we need to have the mics on for this one. Uh, Yeah, yeah, but see, I I was telling the story because the mics were off. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to learn the difference. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. (laughs) There are no innocents. So there's a friend of Chris who ended up in prison. Yeah, this guy I knew. Yeah, no, but actually, could I tell you a Playboy story? Please. Uh, So you started with that. You reminded me when I lived in in Manhattan uh, in the mid 80s, um, I met. Well, uh, like every other story in my life, this one like connects with four other stories. This was a woman who asked me to impregnate her. Okay, I met this woman. <laughs> she was a real estate agent. Okay, I was. Start. I was like twenty. I was in my mid twenties, I guess, and uh, and I met this woman. She, I don't even remember. I met her. It was something to do with real estate, and we had a drink, and then and so then at some point she asked me to impregnate her, and. I'm sorry. Yeah. We had a drink. She asked me to impregnate. You had me at impregnate. You know, you yeah. know how it goes. Um, and but I mean, it's funny. But the story is that her husband um, had leukemia, right? And uh, so it, it, it was kind of a touching situation. Actually, he was going through chemo, and they had been planning to have children, and now he wouldn't be able to have children because of the chemo and the radiation or whatever. So there's kind of like the people who cut their hair to donate the wig, and instead you had different parts of your body that I, were required yeah, for, exactly. for charitable sort of, purposes. Yeah, right. compensating. <laughs> um, and 
so she proposed this to me, and then, uh, you know, I was like, well, you know, I mean, on one side, it's like, wow, I'm touched. But on the other side, yeah. Yeah. So she said, well, at least come to dinner and meet my husband. So one of the most awkward dinners ever. Okay, yeah. Um, But but what this has to do with Playboy is that this guy's job, I remember him telling Uh me he was an airbrusher, a photo airbrusher. This was back in the days before Mm -hmm. Photoshop, right? Right. So, and his main clients were Playboy and Penthouse. And he told me some really interesting things. Like, for example, a lot of those centerfolds, they've got one woman's legs that he would join to another woman's torso and add a third woman's head. Even in the 80s? Yeah, this is in the 80s. Yeah, so he was airbrushing three different women together into one image. Wow. The other thing he told me was that, you know, the women with the large breasts... In Playboy, never. Yeah, they Which occasionally, right. very occasionally, <laughs> um, they they would put uh, ace bandages around a woman's neck and then wrap them under her breast to hold her breasts up, right? Right. Wow. And then his job was to airbrush out the ace bandages. Wow. So it looked like these big breasts are just sort of floating. You anti-gravity know, anti-gravity monsters. Anti-gravity. So. Yeah. As good as his job was, I think the guy was supposed to stick the tape underneath to pull the boob up. I think that job is even cooler. That's a pretty good that job. Should, yeah. 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 <laughs> What do you do all day? Well, I put tapes on boobs. Breast levitator. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So instead of locks for love, this is wads for love. Yeah, yeah. That you're encountering here. That was... So how'd it go? Loads well, the dinner was great. That's better. The din- you know, it was an interesting conversation, if I remember it, you know, 30 years later. But uh, No child support now? No, Good. no, Good. I didn't. I didn't go for that. Well, I think I saw recently where a lesbian couple is now suing their I donor. That. I saw that. Bitches, yeah. please. Yeah, really, really. How is that not in the contract? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guy, you know. All right, I'm not going to say anything about lesbians. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to digress. No, no, and it's not, and, and because also it's not even about lesbians. It's about no, this it's one like fucking couple of these that two We made a deal who, and now yeah. you're, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that it's time for college. Right. Yeah, that just right. fucked up people. Right. But um, I am. Um, so yeah. how did you end up in prison? Please do tell. <laughs> well, the prison story, it's its a long story, man. I mean, it, I could, you know, I could start with the Mansons, but that's, we'll save that for another day. Um, but, uh, okay, let's see. The, the, the quickest, dirtiest way to tell the story is I was hitchhiking to Alaska, as I mentioned on Rogan's right. podcast a couple you know, last week. And um, uh, I met these two dudes on the ferry going up the Inside Passage. They were – the one guy was a black Mormon. Okay, his name was Brent. He was adopted at birth by Mormon cattle ranchers in Provo, I remember. Really nice guy. This guy was so cool. He had this big-ass backpack. He was like a big, strong guy. He had this backpack full of shit. He had the the North Face VE-24 Himalayan hotel uh, tent, which is like (laughs) top of the -the state-of-the-art tent, like a four-person tent. He had two sets of climbing gear because he would meet people on the way and take them climbing. And he wanted to have extra ropes and crampons and everything for friends he would meet on the road. I mean, this guy was wonderful. And his buddy, Rob, who was from Telluride, Colorado, who was like a ski bum, long hair, hippie, pretty boy looking guy. So um, we hooked up on the on the ferry and then ended up deciding to hitch together 
and which amazingly we got picked up by say, this it woman. It makes it more difficult, right? A lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. And what happened was this dude picked us up at, in Skagway and drove us about 20 miles into the woods and then dropped us off and said, hey, watch out for the bears, assholes. Good luck. Really, thank you. <laughs> Are you trying to fuck me? Are you yeah. trying to <laughs> So, yeah, in Alaska, there, there was a lot of um, sort of animosity for the college students who go right. up there for the summer and fuck around and cause trouble and, you know, get a job in a cannery and, you know, then take off and never come back. Um, so that guy was kind of one of one of those, I guess. It's a movie about that. Yeah. So he left us in the middle of nowhere and next to this river. And the thing is, like, no cars come except the cars that come off the ferry. Oh. So we knew we were stuck there for a few days with nothing to do. So I had some acid with me, and these guys had never tripped, and there's nothing else to do. So the wow. three of us tripped and Perfect. got even better friends. And, you know, wow. anyway, I'm, I'll leave out epic. some shit. But we end up getting picked up by this woman who had a Volkswagen van, really wonderful woman. She was a Baha'i. You know, mm-hmm. it's this uh, very peaceful religion yep. from Iran, actually. So she was this trusting, wonderful woman. And she had two little kids. And Ooh. so it ended up like we paid for all her gas. We drove the whole way. She hung out in the back of the car with her kids and had a great time. We That's drove. Amazing. Yeah. And it, it was good a train. long drive. Yeah. So anyway, so we get to Fairbanks and she dropped us off at a laundromat. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we hadn't bathed in, you know, a week or 10 <laughs> days or something. Like, right. You smell bad. Yeah. You get out here now. <laughs> so you like, you know, when you're camping out next to a river in Alaska, you, you like, you know, wash your armpits and your crotch That's and you'd it. splash some water on your face. But that shit is so cold. You're not right. going swimming. Yeah. You know, forget about it. Yeah. yeah. So we uh, so we go to this laundromat and in Alaska, the laundromats are, are like full service. They've got showers and TVs and it's a place because. I guess there are a lot of travelers. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like no beds, as I recall. But um, but I guess like a lot of you know people are camping or sleeping in their cars or their trucks or whatever. So it's a so we put everything in the washers, right? Like we were all three of us were wearing shorts with no underwear, (laughs) boots with no socks, and a jacket with no shirt because everything's in the washer. And Rob, the ski bum, wanted to call his girlfriend back in, I guess they were going to college in, in Boulder. So he wanted to call his girlfriend to tell her, like, he'd made it to civilization, you know, because that's the long stretch from, Fair, from Skag, Skagway up through the Yukon over to Fairbanks. Um, and across the street, there was a grocery store, and we could see there was a payphone. So he's like, I'm going to go call her. Okay, cool. So I say, I'll walk over with you. Hey, Brent, watch our shit. Okay, yeah. So Brent's going to stay in the laundromat and watch the shit. So we walk across the street to use the phone. Sorry, walk across the street with the boots, with no socks, with yeah. the shorts. Right. Right. Half okay, naked. Right. Yeah, Good. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so somebody's on the phone. So we grab a grocery cart and start walking around the grocery store, putting shit in the cart, pretending we're shopping. But we were like, you know, a couple of Russian immigrants, you know, like, wow, look at all this fresh food. It's yeah. like, you know, all this stuff. And so we're putting stuff in the grocery cart. And meanwhile, he cracks open a, a thing of kefir, this liquid yogurt shit. And he drinks that. And I grab a Snickers bar and open that. And I'm eating that. And then we put the wrappers in the cart like we're going to pay when right. we check out, you know. And now the phone's open. So he calls his girlfriend and we look around. Nobody's looking at us and we just take off. Right. And leave the cart there. (laughs) So somebody was looking. Yeah. So so we're halfway across the parking lot (laughs) and the security dude shows up and he's like, you know, he's like a little boot. Huh? Huh? Yeah. (laughs) It's Canada. Uh, So so this dude's like, 
look, it's no big deal, but, you know, you're busted. You're on camera, you know, whatever. You Can come in, you sign this thing, you pay a $20 fine, you pay for what you ate, and that's it. Like, okay, fine. Yeah, but you're right. We're busted. So we walk back in, and we go up to the, his office, which is behind this huge one-way mirror where, you know, you see everybody in the right. store, and we're like, are we stupid? Yes, we're stupid. Yeah. yeah. So so we're we're chatting with a guy and he's cool everything's cool and then this cop walks in. Oh. Apparently the cop had just come in to do some shopping and someone said, "Oh, they got a couple of guys upstairs." So he came up to see what was what and he was one of these little, you know, Nazi asshole with a heart on. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So now he's a cop, you know, and he so he frisks us. I haven't beaten up any hippies this week. Let me get these guys. Yeah, right. exactly. You know, <laughs> college kids, Perfect. you know, rich families, out-of-towners, you know, yep. the whole thing, right? I can yeah. smell LSD. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Was there banjo playing in the background? <laughs> yeah, with? You got a mighty pretty mouth. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was one of those moments. So he, um, so he frisks us, which was not good because I had a knife in my boot and Ooh. a bag of marijuana in Ooh. my pocket. Did you tell him this before or after? Or he did he have to find it? He had to find it, right? Uh, I don't think I mentioned it. Okay. I mean, it, it happened so fast. We're sitting in there, you know, having a nice chat with the dude, and suddenly, next thing you know, we're against the wall getting frisked. Yeah. And and um, but the thing is, the marijuana and the knife were both legal, right? In marijuana at the time when this was mid eighties or early, this was like eighty three, I guess. In Alaska at that point, any adult could grow five plants, and as long as you weren't selling, you were cool. So there was nothing technically illegal, right? And also, uh, concealed weapons in Alaska was like, you know, putting on your fucking underwear. Everybody's right. got guns and shit. <laughs> so, but it, you know, reinforced his sense of not liking us, I think. And uh, next thing you know, we're handcuffed. And he's leading us out of the grocery store down, I'll never forget, going down the milk aisle. And there was this That's black dude. <laughs> yeah, there's this black dude, like, you know, putting the, the milk in the sh- on the shelves. And he looks at us, and he knew the story, of course. And he's, like, laugh, like, falling into the yogurt display, laughing his ass off at the two of us, handcuffed, being let out. And, you know, mothers pulling their children away. And, oh, my God. And he takes us to prison because there are no, at least in those days, there were no, like, county lockup right. kind of things in Alaska. Oh. There were medium and maximum security prisons only. Nice. Right? So we get booked into what I later learned was called the Fairbanks Correctional Center, <laughs> home of the FCC Eagles. Um, <laughs> Uh, that was the basketball team, uh, and so and we get booked in, right? Wow. So the guy, the the guy doing the the intake, looks at the arrest report and he's like, "You're in here for a fucking Snickers bar?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, man, I don't know what's up." And meanwhile, he's he's got my pipe and my my grass and my knife, and you still look like you have no hardly anything on. You exactly. Still look like- that's, exactly. that's how you want to walk into prison. Exactly. Yes. That's. Two 19-year-old white boys oh, with fuck. no underwear on <laughs> walking into prison. Yeah, that's awesome. That's oh, like the start God. The greatest joke ever. We went to prison commando. Yeah, exactly. We were going commando. I never thought of that. That's wow. good. That's good. Wow. So the guy, so I mean, thank God, the guy who's booking us in, he's like, you know, and and he, I mean, we sort of had a bit of a, I don't know. There, I mean, he felt bad for us, I'm sure, because of the, you know, it's just ridiculous. And my, and uh, well, whatever. So, I say to him, you know, 
I don't care if I never see that grass again. And he's like, oh, all right, yeah. So it, I guess maybe it didn't go down on the register, you know, which is fine. And uh, and he said, listen, um, he said, you guys are going to be in here till Tuesday because this – and this is like Thursday night, right? Because it's Memorial Day weekend. The magistrate doesn't get back till Tuesday. <laughs> if he hadn't been drinking – yeah. So he said, but I'm not going to put you in with the general population. I'm going to put you guys on cots in the gym, which is why I remember the FCC Eagles. There's a big thing painted in the gym. Man, you got lucky. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, you two stay together everywhere. You go to the bathroom together. You yeah. shower together. You do everything together and you'll get through this fine. Right. Um, Hold hands too while you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, but they didn't, he didn't give us any uh, any prison garb. I think I don't. I think he didn't. I think we wore like I think they gave us shoes with no laces. The least he could have. <laughs> but I think he left us in our shorts. I I, I don't wow. really remember that. But maybe maybe not. But anyway, now here here's where it gets it gets weird. Okay. Because so I'm so glad, glad I know weird. this in in the event I arrive in Alaska. And it's not weird so far. No, so. it's not weird. Right. No. So so we so we're in this prison, and now it turns out that. Alaska's got a shitload of money from the oil, right? So the prison is great. <laughs> every meal. I say every meal is all you can eat. There's a salad bar, whole wheat rolls, white rolls. Wednesday's prime rib day where the cops can pay a dollar and eat with the prisoners. We're sitting, I remember we're sitting at this table and there's, but you only had 20 minutes per meal. That was the kicker. Oh, wow. You only got 20 minutes, right? So we're sitting there and the guy across the table this Charles Bronson looking motherfucker, you know, he, he's like shoveling it in and he looks up and he says, this is the best fucking prison I've ever been in. <laughs> We're like, uh, Did you say anything back? Yeah, we're like, uh, you're, you're like me too. Well, I mean, well, we did. We, we had a we had a moment of truth uh, where when we were, you know, getting booked in and, and Rob and I were like, OK, so what are we going to tell the other prisoners? Right. Because we thought maybe tell them we like, you know, raped and murdered, you know, to keep them, make them keep their distance. Or like, or I stabbed the guy that was. I fucking my he looked at me wrong. Night. That's why I don't have any clothes on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sleeping in. <laughs> Make up some tough ass story to keep them at bay. Yeah. But my my uh, instinct when I get into really bad a tight spot is just like be honest, you know, because whoever you're lying to is probably a better liar than you are, and they're gonna. And so I was just like, no, man, we got to tell them the truth. So luckily we did. And I, re I remember some huge dude putting his arm around. They all laughed their asses off. Like, Snickers bar and a yogurt? You dudes are in here for a Snickers bar? <laughs> I got killed, man. <laughs> no, seriously. And these are like rapists and murderers in there. Right. This is a medium security prison. And, uh, but I remember one huge dude putting his arm around my shoulders and just saying, you're going to be all right, little man. Like, oh, thank you. Thank you. I hope that doesn't mean I'm your wife. By yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little Can man. You go through what you mean by that. Yeah, exactly. Please. All right. The final little. So anyway, so the, the food was fantastic. The accommodations were wonderful. And um, we did get out finally. What did you tell Brent? Yeah. Like, what happened oh. to Brent? Did, well, that's the ever, thing. Did you ever so we got our anything? one call, right? <laughs> no. uh, we got our one phone call. <laughs> call the laundromat. <laughs> and this is like three hours after we'd left the laundromat. So we call the laundromat and we're like, is there a black dude there? Because there are like no black people right. in Alaska. Is there a black dude there who's been there for a while? And the guy's like, yeah, definitely. He's <laughs> looking kind of worried. So he, <laughs> 
And Brent's like, where the fuck are you guys? Like, Brent, we're in prison. Like, And he laughed wow. his ass off. We're in prison. Holy shit, man. <laughs> so that's a good lesson for you guys. If you're planning on going to jail somewhere, Alaska. Alaska is the place. Fairbanks. Fairbanks is well, the one to go. Well, you know what? Years later, back to Playboy. Mm-hmm. Years later, this must have been... In the mid '90s, I was reading a Playboy magazine. You know how they have that section reading. in the front, like the was, yeah, I was. I was reading. <laughs> They're like it's like news, news something, and like little news tidbits. New and noteworthy. Yeah, something like that. So there was a there was a story there about how they had surveyed prisoners in the federal prison system or something, and rating prisons. And number one was my alma mater. <laughs> Fairbanks Correctional Center was How number one in the nation. Awesome. All right, yeah, awesome. So nice. suck it, Attica. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of like a yeah. San Quentin can kiss my ass. All right. It's no, I don't mean that. I don't pride mean that. you can develop over the funniest things. You know, my high school was the number one handgun violation school two years running when I went there. So. Congratulations. And running is go, the operative word. Go Garfield. Yeah. yeah. Um, nice. Where's that? Colorado or something? No, it's Northern Virginia. Oh. oh. Way to go, guys. Sweet, sweet. So besides hanging out in jail and doing uh, strange things, the, um, yeah, even in your bio that you have on your website, I believe, uh, on Wikipedia or whatever, or somewhere I found info, there are these strange tales about you besides gutting salmon in Alaska, teaching ESL to hookers in Bangkok, mm. uh, doing some strange, what do I see, self-defense to land reform activists in Mexico. That's pretty fun. Yeah, I stumbled... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't want so, to interrupt you. Yeah, there's like a long list of extremely yeah. unlikely stories that yeah. uh, they are. They are each one of them is unlikely. When you string them together, they're just downright nuts, just which like makes I'm a, it. I'm a lion bastard. No, it sounds like this is an awesome tale. So please do tell, because generally speaking, people tend to be. Guys who got salmon in Alaska are guys who got salmon in Alaska. They don't do much else. They certainly don't usually write New York Times bestsellers, and they are not hanging out with hookers in Bangkok, and they are not uh, <laughs> running a podcast. They are, not, yeah, you know, so it's like yeah. uh, a man of many hats. Uh, um, yeah. Well, I mean, what happened was, um, yeah, I, I sort of had a, a very, uh, what's the word, an epiphany, that, that first trip to Alaska. And, and being in prison was part of it and some other stuff that happened that summer. Um, I, uh, I, was, I was, what, 19, 20, something like that. And I, uh, I was on a track to go to grad school, become a professor. I think mm-hmm. you and I talked about this the other day when we were recording for my podcast. And I... I Met so many people on the road who were um, just really good people and they had good lives and they had good relationships and they were just solid. They knew how to fix their own cars and build a house and they, you know, had trained dogs. And and I looked at their lives and these are people who picked me up hitchhiking and took me to their house. So I saw their lives, right? And they had wonderful lives. They right. were they were happy. They were healthy. They And I compared that to these you know, super genius professors that I was hanging out with back at school and, you know, I was going to go to Oxford and all this shit. And I kind of thought like, you know, where do I really want to go with this life of mine? You know, do I really want to be an arrogant, helpless, kind of pathetic intellectual with a, you know, a PhD and, you know, admiring 19-year-old students and nothing else? You know, is that really what I want? Or do I want to 
have more experience myself. Right. So what happened was I said uh, that summer, I said, okay, until I'm 30, I'm not going to commit myself to anything uh, except experience. Right. I'm going to. I remember reading uh, – there's an essay called the, the, Sh- the Figure a Poem Makes by Robert Frost. And he has this great image where he says, like a piece of ice on a hot stove, a poem must ride its own melting. And I looked at my life that way. I said, okay, I'm going to ride the melting of my own innocence or my own youth or whatever. And I'm just going to like go around the world – and let shit happen to me. Right. You know? So that's what happened. So, you know, I went to Mexico, and, I mean, I could tell you that story. One thing led to another. I found myself living on this occupied hacienda teaching martial arts to these, <laughs> these like, hard-ass dudes. You know, or in Bangkok, I, I met this hooker who was pregnant, and which, because I was kind of freaked out about the whole Thai hooker thing. <laughs> right. I didn't really know how to negotiate that. And it didn't help that I was insanely horny. So, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, it's like, I think you can get so hungry you can't eat. I think that's how I was <laughs> around Thai hookers. You're not bargaining from a good right. position at that point. No, <laughs> well, no I, just, I just couldn't even enter into the... Also, like, I'm very... I don't know how to say it. Like, I... To to find myself in a sexual situation with a woman who didn't really want to be there with me would just make me feel so horrible hmm. that yeah. I just that's quite... a tough one to get around. Yeah, I mean, some guys seem to have no problem with it. I'm hearing a common consensus around this thing, so I'm just gonna keep quiet about it. Yeah, you guys seem to be <laughs> all on one yeah, side. Of everybody this. Seen, everybody was nodding yes except Daniel. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. okay, I'll just be quiet. But <laughs> so yeah, so I. Uh, you know, through my 20s and, and 30s, I basically just went around the world and, um, you know, I definitely did not shy away from bizarre things. And also, I think when you make yourself available, strange shit just happens mm-hmm. to you, you know? I mean, if you're out there, you just meet. I mean, I met so many people traveling. I could tell you stories about bizarre people. I mean, I had a job as far as... I, I've always thought it would be fun. You're talking about different jobs. Mm-hmm. It would be fun to write a resume of, like, the real jobs I've had. Right. You know, not the ones, <laughs> not the ones that would help get right. me another one, yeah. but just, like, truth. Like, I had a job um, translating from Ebonics to English yeah. <laughs> for a film festival. Nice. And the way that happened was that uh, it was, I was living in Barcelona, and they have this uh, film festival every year called In Edit, uh, which is independent films. And that year they were focusing on films about the origins of Delta Blues and hip-hop in the 70s in Brooklyn. And... So they had all these, you know, like 20 independent films. And uh, they had like a team of a dozen Spanish uh, translators who spoke English perfectly, right? But they could not understand these black dudes, <laughs> you know, these Delta guys and, and the hip-hop guys. So, so, they, so they said, we got to get a black person in here. So they called the uh, – one of them had a friend who was black and they called him in and he came down and listened. And he couldn't understand them because he was British, right? <laughs> So then somebody else was like, well, I know this guy, Chris, he's white, but I'll give him a try. He's American. So I get this call one day from my friend Pinky, and she says, uh, hey, Chris, do you understand black people? <laughs> That's a leading she, question. I, know. Wow. I thought she meant on some, like, you know, yeah. conceptual level. <laughs> 
<laughs> Why, yes. Do you have to I think so. Deal? So, uh, yes, so then, uh, you know, I went down and watched, and I was like, oh, yeah, he's saying, you know, that he got the guitar from his uncle, and, you know, and oh, great. So, so they didn't even want me to translate into Spanish. Right. All I had to do was, we sat, I sat there in a room with these translators, watched the film, pause. Okay, he just said the da-da-da-da-da. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> So it was literally Ebonics to English. You are the Ebonic R- Rosetta Stone. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow for yeah. real. Yeah. That's, yeah. But yeah, that seems to be like a running thread of uh, the stuff that interests us here is people who can have, uh, who can be more than one thing. You know what I mean? That writing a New York Times bestseller goes hand in hand with you doing the weirdest shit on the planet, including translating right. from Ebonics. And it's part of the... What makes people interesting ultimately, which is, you know, what the oldest conversation are, if it's just about one thing and one thing only, we'll all be bored in three minutes and be like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Blah. You yeah. know, we're out. Well, I, I think it goes further too when you think about <clears throat> throwing a bunch of shit on the wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, if you, like, a lot of people uh, go to school and they settle on some sort of profession or trade. Mm-hmm. They've never really tried to go and, you know, be a goddamn Ebonics translator. Yeah. Maybe they're going to be really good at that. <laughs> right, right, right. It seems like you would never, I mean, it's like the better way to go and figure out what you're really good at. It, it helps if you're desperate for money, too. Yeah. Oh, okay. well, that was yeah, my that, question. Did, you, when you yeah, rolled yes. into town, did, was there anything set up? Or you find yourself in Bangkok? What, did you row there or something? And then... <laughs> Well, no. I mean, I would do jobs and then r- so you know, a little ride bit, a little money. bit to get there. Okay, yeah. I see. I mean, I did. All right, here's another crazy story. Okay, what? I, I go to New York after Alaska. I went back to Alaska second year, and and I got a job on a boat. <laughs> and he was knocking at the doors of the prison, saying, yeah. "I had He's such like, a great no, time last time." I just you stole this it's buffet night. I've it. got my dollar. Just I'm want to visit. For all the guards. Just well, want to visit. You, you, yeah, you should have went back to the same yeah. market, walk out eating it. Like, this au jus oh. on this prime rib <laughs> is the best I've ever had. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, shit. This, I could tell you stories. But anyway, the, so I, I, after Alaska, there was this woman, this, this beautiful Puerto Rican girl named Ana, who actually, at the beginning of Sex at Dawn, I tell a story about defending her from a monkey who attacked us in, <laughs> okay. in uh, okay, not Malaysia. Okay, not defending her from a monkey. What the ah, fuck? Yeah, so that, that's Ana. But anyway, this is years earlier, and, and uh, I'd known her in college a little bit, and I sort of wanted to you know know her more. And so I came up with this plot. I'm like, sorry, I, I want to know her more. What is this, the Bible or something? Yeah, it's the biblical sense. I, I knew this was going to be low. I want to know her deeper. Uh, so I, I come up with this plan that I'm going to go live in, in New York City because I'd never lived in a big city. So I was like, okay, first step, go to New York. Yeah, yeah. I'll drive a taxi, whatever, get a job in a restaurant, and Doesn't I'll, I'll uh, get to know Anna better. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, so I go to New York. I end up getting this job on 106 and Lex, which is upper, like, Spanish Harlem. And this was 84 or 5, something like that. Uh, anyone listening who knows New York will know that was not a good place for me to be at that point. Um, but I, I got this apartment. And I got a job through my parents. Friends of my parents had friends who owned a restaurant on the Upper West Side, this Italian restaurant. So I got a job waiting tables in this restaurant. And after about two weeks, one night there was a guy sitting there alone having dinner. It was late. And he was reading a book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Mm -hmm. Milan Kundera, which happened to be like my favorite novel in the world at that point. So we start talking about the book. And he says, uh, hey, you want to have a glass of wine? I was like, yeah, okay. So I sat down and had a glass of wine with him. It was late and nobody cared. And, uh, 
And so, he, you know, I told him Alaska because he was asking where you're yeah. from, what's going on. And I told him about the salmon and why I'm here. And, uh, and he was fascinated by all this. So he I'm says, um, <laughs> he says, what are you doing tomorrow? I, I said, I don't know. He said, wait, come to my gym. We'll work out and continue the conversation. So, of course, I'm thinking... He wants to know yeah. you. That's yeah. a pass. Yeah. That's called a making a pass. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> that I mean, that did occur to me. But I mean, you know, I've got lots of very close friends who are gay and I did then and so I'm comfortable, you know, whatever, you know, I, right. I can I can deal with whatever. And also he was a cool guy and, and whatever, sure. you know, whether he's gay or not, it, yep. it was a good conversation. So uh so I meet him at his gym. Now, okay, I've been in New York like a month, right? And I don't know anything. So he just gave me the address. I show up. The address was on, um, I think it was uh, 57th, Central Park South. It was called the New York Health and Racket Club or something like oh. that. This is like where Bill Clinton goes and Henry Kissinger. It's right. that kind of gym. Members only. Yeah. <laughs> like you walk in and there's like a guy saying, may I take your coat, sir? And, you know, here's your robe. Wow. And like, uh, you, what, this is a gym? What do you mean? And I you're mean, in boots, shorts, and a coat like normal. <laughs> that's right. I still don't have underwear. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go and come in. Right. Well, I told you the other day, my Kung Fu teacher told me I should never wear underwear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's his fault. Right. And that's when I was eight. Right. Um, but anyway, so I so I go to the gym, and this guy, it was such a weird conversation, because it was basically two conversations in parallel. So he would say, uh, his name was Joe, and he, he was about 10 years older than me, so he's in his mid-30s. And so we'd be talking, and like half the conversations were these really deep philosophical questions like um you know what happens when you die uh can people really change or are we you know stuck the way mm -hmm. we are um you know this and then interspersed with those sorts of issues would be i remember one was uh if you went back to your apartment tonight and the lights didn't work what would you do i said check the fuse box ah oh, where is the fuse box it's in the kitchen how many circuits two circuits how many amps per circuit i think 20 amps per circuit and then, like, so do you think love is real? You know, like, what, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. Anyway, Heavy. long story, a little bit less long. Turns out he's interviewing me for a job, unbeknownst to me, as his personal assistant. He's just inherited $50 million worth of real estate in the oh. Diamond District, oh. 47th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. So... Three months after arriving in New York, I'm working as the right-hand man to this guy who owns three buildings in the Diamond District. I'm negotiating leases with Hasidic Jewish diamond dealers. I've got, you know, armed security guards working for me. We've got a vault in the basement with a billion dollars worth of shit. And then he gives me an apartment in a penthouse as because that way when the alarms go off, he doesn't have to drive down from New Rochelle where he lives. I've got the codes to the vault. I've got, It's like... I just, like, stumbled into this thing. The and typical path that usually takes people from Fairbanks, Alaska, county jail, or whatever that is. <laughs> I to, knew you were going to say that. Yeah, there's a clear linear project. Yeah, yeah you can see, yeah. So so what happened was, um, I mean, it, was, it ended up being a complex situation, which I want to write about. My editor keeps telling me I have to write memoirs, which yeah. feels I... arrogant in some way. But, I mean, this story is so complex because... What happened was, I remember when he offered me the job, I said to him, you know, dude, I haven't, like, taken a math class since high school, right? I have no business background. Right. I don't even like business. And he said, how many of your friends studied business in college? I said, none of them did. He said, none of mine did either. 
He said, I don't want a businessman. I'm going to be hanging out with you. I have to trust you. I have right. to spend a lot of time with you. I want an interesting person to hang out with. I don't want some <laughs> fucking businessman. Uh, and it turns out he was in a PhD program at Tulane in psychology and was a star student. He'd published an article in Nature as the right. first author as a student, which wow. is unheard of. And then, you know, family pressure brought him back in to, to run these, these business. Pressure. And <laughs> so he didn't really want to be well, there either. Right. And so he, I think in a deeper psychological sense, he saw me as this free spirit, and he w- felt like if if he could seduce me into this life, then it was a pretty good life. Right. So there, was a, there were complex psychological yeah. things going on there. Anyway, so I saved up a bunch of money in that job. Hell yeah. And then I quit that job because of this hot Spanish woman who walked into my office one day. I quit that job and flew a one-way ticket to New Delhi. Nice. So I rode that money for a few years. And we haven't even heard the India story yet, huh? Mm. No, no, but this is like... We first mentioned in India. What was, your, what was your major? <laughs> what was your first major? Is Literature. It? So you just... Was it a BA in Lit? When yeah, you... yeah, yeah. And then yeah. I did a master's and a PhD in psychology, but years later, you know, decades later. Wow. Yeah. Jesus Christ. The story that this man can share... We can go on forever because they're damn awesome. In the meantime, by the way, we just saved the the audio from you guys, whatever you were hearing 10 seconds ago. We took a break to save and everything. And he went on in even wilder, crazier stories. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a never-ending supply of them. And yeah. we're probably going to go back for more in a little bit. But it seems only fair to ask the good man about his book. And um, so about sex at dawn, you... Well, let me start from a weird angle, I guess, because there's um, somebody decided to cash in on the fact that you made, uh, you got a New York Times bestseller entitled Sex at Dawn by writing Sex at Dusk, trying to argue everything the opposite of what you do, because, you know, of course, if you made money on it, if I talk shit about the guy who made some money on the book, maybe I can make some money too. And there's some pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, there's like, I was looking at some stuff that I saw, um, some of the critiques that other people wrote, um... One guy accused you and your wife of ignoring or misrepresenting reams of anthropology and biology in your eager in their I guess in their eagerness to make a brief for some sort of Russonian sexual ideal that exists and or existed only in their overheated libidinous imaginations. <laughs> I, I, let me get my thesaurus real quick. I'm yeah, sorry, I'm, which, which uh, in other words, we're, we're horny liars, yeah. I think is what he Yeah, kind of, that's basically what yeah. he's saying in a very long, convoluted way, which yeah. leads me to think, I mean, first is I've had people write chapters against stuff I've written, but a whole book, damn, I'm envious. That's pretty cool. Yeah, thank Plus, you. Plus, you know, you have this whole long thing. It's like, did you steal this guy's girlfriend? You know, what happened? What sold this animosity that, it's with? It's a funny story. That's Daniel, uh, David Barish. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. Great guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I met him. Yeah. Uh, I met him. I was speaking at a polyamory conference in Seattle. Right. Uh, a year and a half ago or something. And um, the the author of The Ethical Slut was there, whose name is escaping me right now. D- Dottie Easton. Dottie, I think her name is Dottie Easton. I read that book, actually. Yeah. That was fun. So she was there, and, and she uh, – I was walking through the lobby, and she was about to go out to dinner with uh, David Barish and his wife, um, something Lipton. And um, she said, oh, Chris, meet my friends there. And I, and I knew of their work because they had published a book called The M- Myth of Monogamy or The Monogamy mm-hmm. Myth. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so we shook hands and, and he said, congratulations on the book. You know, I, I really enjoyed your book or something like that. And I was like, oh, great. Thank you. This is before the other one. Yeah. And then he wrote this review, yeah. you know. It's like, what if you didn't enjoy it? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. really? I'd hate yeah. to see if you didn't like it. Yeah. Um, but but that's a funny review. That was that was published in uh, the Chronicles of Higher Education. And it's mm-hmm. a funny thing because it's it's ostensibly a review of Sex at Dusk, this, this right. diatribe against us. Um, but, you know, he accuses us of, I mean, what you just read was bad enough, but he also says we misrepresent the data, mm-hmm. that we, you know, completely have no understanding of evolutionary science, you know, just lays it out without a single example mm. of any of the crimes he accuses right. of. Right, right, so right. So he accuses us of being stupid, of being uh, disingenuous, of, you know, everything you can possibly accuse someone of, but he doesn't give one single example. Right. So, you know, my feeling is, uh, and, and he begins that review by saying, if, if one more person asks me about this book, Sex at Dawn, I'm going to vomit. Right. That's the opening sentence. Of nice. Thing. So, I mean, my feeling is like, look, dude, I'm sorry our book sold more copies than yours. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Right. Okay. That, you know, there's nothing personal. It's like your older brother. Yeah. It's, it's mad that you got something going on. Or right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, it's, it's emotional. If, if. And people ask me to respond, like, hey, why don't you write a response? What am I going to respond yeah. to? The guy's nah. pissed off, yeah. you know? I'm I, Whatever. I'm sorry he's pissed off. It's You and I were talking about Aikido the other day. Right. You know, I try to... I try to assume an Aikido position where it's like, look, if you're going to be, you want to be angry at me, be angry at me, you right. know, but I'm not going to get caught yeah. up in it. If there were examples, if he said, look, you know, this study, you know, blah, 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 you used it to, fine, I'll respond to that. But there's nothing substantive. Now, as far as sex at dusk goes, um, I sort of shot myself in the foot on that one because this person by the way that book the the author's name is lynn saxon mm-hmm. but lynn saxon doesn't exist nice ah. that's always people have looked for lynn saxon and can't find any record of right. him or her anywhere so that leads me to wonder if maybe you know david barash is lynn saxon or you know who is lynn saxon it's kind of it's funny someone writes a book accusing us of dishonesty among other things and uses a false name yeah of course that's always the way you want to go about it yeah what you guys don't know is that actually he's chris who's bored one night doesn't know he's so research fairly well so it's like you know i already know the material let me argue the other side i know i'm yeah. full of shit yeah, yeah exactly but yeah. but Lynn Saxon was lurking on Amazon, or someone using that name was lurking on Amazon, and every time someone would write a positive re- uh, comment about our book, she would immediately uh, show up and say, no, no, you don't understand. You, you think it's good. It's not good. Right. It's completely blah, blah, blah. And so I tried engaging with this person, and uh, there was this long comment thread where we went back and forth, and I was, again, trying to be like very Aikido about it, very calm right. and centered. And then finally, you know, I've learned since becoming a semi-public figure that when people begin with the assumption that you are a liar mm-hmm. or a bad person, there's no point no. to conversation. You're never going to change their mind. So um, at some point in that, I said, look, you know, instead of wasting all your effort and time here on Amazon in this endless, you know, 
uh, diatribe, why don't you write your own book? No, you yeah. gave the idea. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> Great. So then they well did. Played. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's and then that And then it's interesting because now that whole exchange on the Amazon thing has been deleted. It's almost... It's bizarre because anytime something is successful on uh, at a public level, at a popular level, uh, I don't know how much or how little you had in terms of academic responses to that beside some of the stuff, but that regardless of what, what you actually say, regardless of content, that's automatically a strike against you. It's like, people read you, motherfucker? Why do right. they read you and they don't read my 700-page tome mostly made of footnotes on right. the same topic? And right. it's just like... And there's this level of just jealousy for anything that Disdain. people actually yeah. are interested in. Because yeah. if you're popular, it means you must suck. Because I'm not popular, and I'm obviously wonderful and awesome. So right. there must be something wrong with being popular. Well, it's like thinking a woman, a beautiful woman, must be stupid. Yeah. You know? It's like, well... Because she's going for him and not for me. So she obviously is an yeah. idiot, right? Yeah. yeah, I I mean, and also the the subject matter of our book... Uh, connects with people on a very personal level. Right. So what you said is definitely operative, but then there's also, uh, there's a passionate and intensity about it because people feel that their own lives are being indicted in some way. Now, that has worked in in, in this case. 95% of the response mm-hmm. we get is just amazingly, beautifully positive. Right. I mean, people writing. I had a guy come up to me and say, Literally, he came up to me and said um, that our book saved his life. Wow. You know, and so many people, because his girlfriend had cheated on him and he was like spiraling out of control and his friend was with him and his friend said, yeah, he's not exaggerating. He was like on his way out. And then the book gave him a context to understand his girlfriend cheating on him as not being that big of a deal and not being about him. Right, that she's just a woman. She's just a human being. We're all. I mean, the whole message of the book, to the extent that there is a message, is you know to to understand what sort of animal we are right. and and dispense with these unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. that love means you won't ever desire anyone else, or right. or that the fact that you did fuck someone else means you don't love your partner right. anymore. It's like we're mixing all this shit together. And it, it's a completely unrealistic sense of what sort of animal we are, you know? And you're doing so throughout the book by sort of looking at human evolution, uh, all sort. Like you're taking that not just as a present type of analysis, but you're doing so by looking historically at the very basics of what kind of makes us human before right. civilization in a way. Right. And uh, to, yeah, so that, <laughs> yeah, I can see how that would uh, strike a chord in people both both ways. Yeah. You know, both in a way right. that people really dig and in a way that scares people. Because, I mean, the reality of it is that we live in a society in which jealousy is encouraged as a sign that you care. Exactly. Jealousy is a good thing. And it's like, how is jealousy a good thing? You know, how is getting obsessed over owning somebody yeah. a good thing, really? Just getting sure. peace and that, that's something we should... And not that is, there, there isn't an element that's natural about it because, I mean, we all... The reality is that a lot... Like, we all, when we, when we like something, we want something to last. And we want things to be there for us whenever we want. We want it to stay that way forever. Never mind that that's just not the way life works about anything, let alone human relationships. But I can understand the instinct. But the fact that then on a social level we encourage it and we 
give thumbs up to an emotion that we should actually teach people how to get rid of seems sick and weird on so many levels. And yeah. the fact that you just go and tell them, well, maybe we should reconsider on some of this issue and show the evidence for it. I can see how that would get a lot of people up in arms and all huffing puff. If I can't have her, nobody can. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Did you get a lot of religious blowback too? No, we were hoping to, but um, oh, dang it, yeah. Uh, no, I think that what happened with the religious thing is that by the time our book came out, uh, the sorts of people who would, you know, produce that blowback were so deep in their own hole. You know, like what Catholic, for example, you know, what priest is going to say, wait a minute, this isn't the right way to look at human sexuality. <laughs> right. Oh, really? Yeah. You, you, yeah. Expert. Introduce right. me to your, you know, your altar boys and then tell me <laughs> yeah. about, you know, or, you know, whatever. I mean, every, every fundamentalist religious figure or tradition is so, um, you know, buried in their own hypocrisy. Which, yeah, I was going to say, therein lies the huge paradox of this enlightenment seeker or something, whatever religious and what fundamental part of life is love. And, you know, yeah. And they, they can't, can't address it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and we're going to have, you know, a 55 year old self-proclaimed virgin, probably closeted homosexual. Who's going to, you know, give us yeah. marriage advice. Right. I mean, yeah. really? Yeah, How true madness. It's, it's a strange thing. I, I was talking to a friend the other day. Uh, it's been my, my best buddy for forever since I was 15 or something. <laughs> Um, and, you know, we're sort of going around the cycles of life. We met when we were 15. And uh, actually, his first girlfriend was a woman I was sleeping with. And I introduced them. And then they fell in love. And so so I sort of started out early in this stuff. But, nice. Well played. Yeah. Um, but human bonobo. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, even at the time, I, I was 16, 15, 16 or something. And at the time, I remember feeling like, you know, the three of us were supposed to. We, I lived in Connecticut at this point, and this woman had moved uh, from Belgium, I think. So she was like the sexy European, you know. And both of us were like, "Yeah, European, yeah, okay." So I'm beginning to move away from Chris just a little bit. Just yeah. in case. <laughs> the sexy European talk is making me nervous, yeah. but he's got the special glasses. I'm not worried, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The uh, glasses. <laughs> so, so I hooked up with her, and we had sort of a casual thing. But my friend was uh, very uh, – my, my friend actually was religious and wasn't the kind of guy who was having sex with someone he didn't love, right? Right. So then when the three of us were supposed to go to Manhattan one day together, and for some reason I couldn't go, so the two of them went, and they fell in love essentially. And I remember at the time, like – you know, when you're 16, uh, losing uh, really sort of a fuck buddy, yeah. that's a bummer because yeah. they're few and far between. You right. know? Yeah. I mean, when's the next girl going to move from Belgium to right. Fairfield, Connecticut? Yeah. But, you know, they were in love. That was a whole different thing. So even at the time, I remember thinking like, hey, that's my best buddy and she's great. And what they have is much bigger than what I had. And so, yeah, what the hell, you know? Yeah. But if I can't have her, nobody can. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy this sort of things pop up. And, and, and wow, this is complicated. Yeah. You know, and it's like a series of things that go through your mind throughout life all over again. But when you learn them early, it's like, wow, this is That was very mature situation. of you, though. Yeah. yeah that's, you took that well. Well, 16, that, that could have been hard. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the... And I had braces, too, dude. So I wasn't like, you know, I had zits and braces. Right. It, I wasn't going to get laid again until, you know, 18. 32 years later. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, yeah. that would be but a it, bummer. But anyway, yeah. so I'm talking to this guy, and because now he's got kids, and his oldest son is uh, just turning 16, and the dude is, I mean, his my friend is is Russian uh, by you know uh, ethnicity, so he's I often joke that he's so white he's blue, mm-hmm. and his his wife is from Congo. And she's so black, she's blue. Right. And their kids are like Tiger Woods gorgeous. Like all three of them are just these beautiful, hybrid, vigor, you know, brilliant, smart, beautiful people. Anyway, so his oldest son's 16 and we're talking about this. And I said, you know, dude, we were like 15 when we met, you know. How, and, and we were talking about all this spate of uh, high school teachers sleeping with their male students, you know. And some of the teachers are hot, too. I said, how are you going to feel – you know, if something like that happens, or just an older woman, because you and I would have been like, score, yeah. yes. And he's like, yeah, it's different when it's your son. It's different. I said, really, really? it's different. I don't. And then, so anyway, we we're talking about like how, because you know, he would be like, well, I'd be really concerned that there's some manipulation going on, oh, that there's some oh, weird oh. shit. Um, you know, and I don't have kids, so I don't have the yeah. sort of that, that was the score for my son. I was. Yeah. I'm, yeah, so you have a what son you about that do? age? Yeah. I got one that's a little older, and hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would think so. It's I mean, definitely a double-edged sword. The, yeah. the, 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 the creepy football coach and the little right, junior. Right, right. A lot of people that catch 22 are in the No, it's two sets of rules, and I'm sorry. There's not a... Yeah. If your 16-year-old right. is lucky enough to nail his teacher... <laughs> <laughs> I think I can, I think I can get over that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I my would, daughter, on the other hand, <laughs> there would be an execution at dawn. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm fifty well, fifty on this one. Right. Well, okay. So the point I was getting to is, isn't it interesting that this is, as far as I can tell, this is the only part of life where. We don't encourage older people to teach younger people the ropes. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Let me go on a rant because I knocked off the table just yeah, because wow. I got so excited wow. about it. Daniela yes. just had an ejaculation. He's, he's had it. Okay. So here we are. Um, I'm hugging my champagne bottle. It's empty, but it provided much comfort, and I love it. So I'll kiss it and hug it. But you were saying the whole thing about the older person who teaches you and that's how my life got fucked up because nobody when i was 13 years old brought me to a wonderful 23 year old hooker and would show me the ropes and everything would have been so much easier since then i was having a conversation a few days ago and, um, i don't know maybe people have better experiences but typically anytime i talk to a lot of people who talk tell me about a sort of their first uh you know, you're bullshitting about various topics. You talk about sex, uh, first sexual experience. Most people, not that fun because there's so much pressure. There's all that stuff. There's So most people are freaked out. There's this performance anxiety. There's all of this shit. And the other people involved are usually not nearly, you know, they don't know shit either. So it's like, it's bad news. Plus, you are thinking about how the other person is going to perceive you. If there's a love relationship, you want to seem amazing and awesome, and you're not going to be the first time. So it's like, there's all that crap. And I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be so much easier if somebody, if there was the hooker teacher as a social role that is just, (laughs) as a philanthropist, as a goddess of mercy, you show some... (laughs) The person, the ropes, you take them through the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, eight, nine, tenth. After a while, it's kind of like, okay, it's like driving school. It's like, now you know, you can sort of start playing on your own and see what happens with the other people and take. 
that would make life so much easier. More and, of a one-on-one sex education. You know, we take sex education in high school. Yeah, school, yeah, 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 right? exactly. One-on-one. <laughs> and you pick, you know, it's kind of like uh, anything else, like a counselor or something. You pick, you know, you see there are a few out there and you're like, no, I don't think I'm going to get along with that one. That would be weird. And that would be, a, but, oh, that one. Grandma. Can, yeah, no, that's, but you, I can learn from that one. Yes. And, you know, you make it where... You only go for it for so long because otherwise you develop weird attachment to that one person, which is totally missing the point because that's and not. And there's a waiting list. And there's a waiting <laughs> list. <laughs> you, you get your five, six sessions, and you know, get on with your exactly. life. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And but, plenty of that. And uh, that, to in my mind, I mean, part of it I'm bullshitting, but part of it not really. I really think that that would make life so much healthier and make more sense than the way we have it today. There's just way too much mental bullshit surrounding sex where people freak out and they... I see when I correct, this is the part that... It's funny, I guess, but it kind of pisses me off. When I read the papers in my History of Religions class, one of the things that I ask them to do in this uh, create-your-own-religion type of paper is to uh, address their thoughts about a whole variety of issues. Right, kind of like in create. If you were to create your own religion, how would you? What would your attitude be about uh, nature? What would your attitude be about the human body? About and among the things is about sex. And it's hilarious to see how people write about it because clearly most people are uncomfortable talking about sex, and they have to. And I mean, we're talking about college students. They're we're not talking. On it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, never mind that. I guess I don't think I make it easier because I remember somebody was like what exactly are you asking for here? And I was keeping a totally straight face. And I was like, well, you know, drawings, little pictures, if you take of yourself, you know, things that, and if you want to introduce visual aids. And, I know, they were looking at me like, oh, fuck, no, but, no, but the point that's funny is that I read, um, like, every other thing always is, Sex is great and wonderful. If it's all about these unions of souls merging into each other. And I mean, don't make me sound like too much of a barbarian because I do get that that's something cool and wonderful about sex with somebody you deeply love and is part of that. That's great and all. But come on, that's the only thing that can exist and is socially acceptable. What about just sex for sex sake? Which doesn't mean you have to be an asshole about it. Doesn't mean you have to be you know, some predatory dick who's trying, doesn't care about the other person in any way, shape, or form. You can be nice to each other, but, you know, be nice to each other in the moment doesn't mean that you have to be deeply crazy in love, doesn't mean you have to be there forever and promise. And people seem to be uncomfortable. Like, sex almost needs to be justified through love. Love is the way to make it acceptable. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what the fuck? And again, I don't want to sound like the one who's against love because obviously that's not the point at all, but it's confusing two things that can go together but don't really have to all the time. As long as there's some basic minimum respect for other persons, you're not using somebody in a fucked up way the way you wouldn't do that in any other context in life, then what's the... I don't get it, you know? Yeah, I I, I often think sex is like uh, music mm -hmm. in that sense that... Yeah, it can be, uh, you know, a Bach toccata in a church that makes you see God, mm -hmm. or it can be, you know, Rolling Stones sticky fingers, you know, that's just a good fucking time with mm -hmm. friends, you yep. know. And it's no insult to the religious music mm -hmm. to say sometimes music's just fun, yep. you know, and, 
And, you know, this whole thing about sex and love, it's, yeah, definitely they can be an incredibly powerful combination. Mm -hmm. Of course. As can just about anything else and love, you know. You can, I mean, you go camping uh, in the Sierras with uh, someone you really love, and that's going to be an amazing experience. But you know what? You could go camping by yourself in the Sierras, and that's pretty fucking cool. Or you can just go with some friends, and that's pretty cool, too. It's not the same thing, right? But there's no – we don't think there's there's any diminishment of the activity by doing it in a less sacred way. Yep. You know, same for food. You can mm-hmm. have a fucking amazing meal that transports you to another world, or you can eat a good fucking burger. You know, what's the problem? Absolutely. I go camping by myself, metaphorically speaking, a lot. Yeah. So I'm all in favor of that. <laughs> 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 which, which leads us to the, uh, what are those those jerk-off cans called? The, oh, this is the flashlight. had a flashlight mentioned since Duncan was here. Now, is it just our puritanical nightmare or is this society as large for the whole planet no it's it's us is there somewhere we can move to where it's relaxed and well the past (laughs) unfortunately (laughs) because the thing is i mean there's this campaign against societies you know the first thing the missionaries do is stamp out the shamelessness around sex right you know put some goddamn clothes on put some clothes on and stop fucking your friends you know this is you don't understand god's watching but when you were talking about um what did you call them the goddesses of mercy oh yeah yeah <laughs> you know there are society there are lots of societies and there were many mm-hmm. many societies in which Older women initiated the adolescent boys into sex, and the older men initiated the adolescent girls into sex. And it wasn't rape. It was it was exactly. the same way we teach driver's ed. You know, imagine if we sent 15- and 16-year-olds out and said, okay, here's a car, you know, go learn to drive. Teach kids. each other. Yeah, yeah, teach each other. It would be a fucking disaster. But that's what we do with sex, you know. But, yeah, the uh, in the South Pacific particularly, there were um, – uh, some societies we write about in the book. I don't remember the name exactly right now, but I think Malinowski was there, mm-hmm. um, where uh, the boys learn how to have sex with a woman and learn how to give orgasms. And every boy in that society learns that you do not come until your partner comes. Right. And you know how to make her come, and she comes over and over again. And that's just part of being a man, yep. you know? Yep, big and time. Doesn't that seem like a rule we could get some leverage behind here in the United States? I guess you got to deal with 37% of them are fundamentalist crazy women, yeah. too, so they're not going to jump in. Yeah. But I think we could get some support for you this. You think we might be able to get a Kickstarter program? Why the hell not? Yeah, for, no, for goddesses of mercy. <laughs> exactly. If nothing else, it's a great rule, you know? Yeah. Right, I mean, and of course, the power should be in the hands of the adolescent who chooses who they want in that regard. Sure. You know, there should be, shouldn't be like, hey, come here and let me teach you. It's like, that's yeah. gross and rapist and weird. Right. You know, it should be the, they get to choose out of all these options out there. They take a look, this, 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 I have a chat with this and this one, I feel okay with, you know. So in that way, there's nothing abusive about it, there's nothing weird about it, it's in their hands, it's yeah. their choice. I but, had an, an Islam, uh, a woman, Fatima, 21-year-old Tunisian woman, mm-hmm. who um, asked me to teach her about sex. That's 
I can cry Good right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, after yeah. all, you are even better than Fabio. So she didn't yes. know that, though. Yeah, okay. I should put that up on a web page yeah. somewhere. Yeah. No, that's that's not a story I'm going to tell uh, in detail. But yeah, but there there are a lot of women who. Uh, you know, I think men would do it if they could, mm-hmm. you know, but it's just a lot harder when you're yeah. a 16-year-old guy or a 20-year-old guy or whatever. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of women at that age sort of do look at it and say, okay, yeah, I could screw my 16-year-old boyfriend, but what the hell is he going to teach me? Right. Yeah. You know, and yeah. they take a very practical approach to yeah. it. Well, and the real terror is everything they do learn is porn on the internet now, uh, where it's yeah. level right. seven right. on the first day. Right. Where are you going to take it from here, baby? Yeah. And that's sort of a nightmare almost. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's that's the the wrong place to be learning. Yeah, because that's too is like the result of living in a sexophobic society in one way is the exact opposite, which is repression leads to an attitude about sex that's supposed to be embracing, but really it's sort of the grossest, weirdest, very anti-women in a lot of ways and it's kind of like come on man why can't we just have a healthy happy attitude about sex that's yeah. not either this fundamentalist crap or this because uh, I mean a lot of the sex indulgence peddled in a lot of porn is not even that that sexual in a way you know there's, it's about powers about frustration it's about a lot of weird crap that has nothing to do with having fun you well, know, you, there's a lot of creeps that have ruined it yeah absolutely a lot of yeah. Like if you could just suck out the creepiness. <laughs> no, that same way as the, you know, hookers should be the goddesses of mercy, porn should be, you know, an art form, except that in the hands of a bunch of idiots who produce crap for the most part, you know what I mean? With exceptions. And even when it's crap, it's still, sometimes it's still interesting for this and this and the other. But at the same time, it's like, man, there are so many more ways to make this stuff not as damn complicated as they want to make it like we had actually one lady asked us uh, knowing that you are coming on um, on the air today she sent a couple of questions that seem apropos here uh, one thing that she said was about how do we manage to live in a culture that we are really not genetically programmed for both whether in terms of monogamy or attitudes toward technology or things like that you know your research clearly shows that is not exactly in our dna and at the same time, this is where we're at. How do you deal with this sort of schizophrenic feeling between what your instincts and DNA has been mm. raised to go and where yeah. where we are? Yeah, that's that's one of the most fundamental questions that, that can be asked about all this stuff. The way I look at it is that we are primates in a zoo mm-hmm. that we ourselves have designed. And so the, the ultimate... We're never going to get out of the zoo. Mm -hmm. There are too many of us to live as hunter-gatherers, certainly. Right. So the most we can do is, you know, if you're going to be in a zoo, you want to be in the San Diego Zoo. You don't want to be in the Calcutta Zoo. (laughs) Um, So I think what what I'm trying to do with my work in this this book and the next book I'm, I'm working on now, which is called Civilized to Death, is to increase our awareness of what sort of animal we are, what our natural environment would be, mm-hmm. what, what our predispositions are based on our, our evolution and our genetics and so on. And so that we can design better enclosures for ourselves so that we're, it's still going to be artificial. 
right? But at least let's make it um, more in alignment with what comes naturally to our species because that'll lead to greater happiness and fulfillment. Right. So, you know, she's right. We'll never go back to our so-called, I don't even like using the word natural, but Mm -hmm. our our default environment. Um, But we can design our environment to uh, incorporate this knowledge in ways that that makes us healthier and happier. Right. You know, you see people doing it now with the paleo movement, Mm -hmm. trying to always looking at diet in terms of our evolution. Or there's a great book called Born to Run, Mm -hmm. where he uh, talks about how the body is evolved to run in a certain way. And yet, I was thinking of this when you were talking about porn, right? Mm -hmm. It seems that a lot of what happens in capitalism is, you know, the the nature of capitalism and consumerism is that these companies are always looking for a way to sell us things. And one of the best ways to sell us things is to cut off our access to the freely available stuff, Mm -hmm. Right, and and I think a lot of monogamy is that you know right. you if women were were open and free with their sexuality, then you wouldn't be able to leverage that male desire to get them to buy cars to pick up the women or to get them to go work to make money so they could get the women. Shit, right. we wouldn't have left the caves. Yeah, we'd be in hammocks. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Very no question about that. Yeah, and that's why I mean, every it's there's a great conundrum in all this, which is that that you know Westerners always think that our way of life is so superior, and yet every time the Westerners, the Europeans, came into contact with hunter gatherer societies and and you know offered to teach them how to farm and everything, the hunter gatherers are like, "Are you fucking crazy? Why would I work all day for yeah. food?" And one hunter gatherer famously said. Why would I farm when the world is full of mongogo nuts? You know, it's like, dude, yeah. there's food everywhere. Yeah. You know, Wait, just leave me alone. Let me yeah. lie here and you know tell stories to my grandkids. Um, but anyway, so so I think that that you know the the nature of our economic system is to cut off access to the freely available stuff, so then they can sell us mm-hmm. a cheap fucked up version of that thing because we've got this built-in hunger for right. it. So in sexuality, you know, you get porn instead of uh, a rich sexual life where you can have sex with friends and there's, right. no, and there's no hassle involved. Um, and diet, you know, they instead of uh, they wipe out the naturally occurring mm-hmm. stuff and tell us, don't eat insects, don't eat this, don't eat that, even though they're more nutritious and healthy and we get, you know, whatever, fast food. Right. So anyway, so the point, the answer to the, her question, in as much as I have one, is that um, I think we just this knowledge is really useful in designing a better artificial environment for right. ourselves. Right. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's one of the things because it's um, what you were saying about like missionaries. One of the first thing that they jump on when they come into contact with their hunting and gathering society is sexuality. It yeah. makes sense also because if you want to control somebody, the best way to do is by going after sexuality. Because shame. yeah, the moment yeah. you instill shame in related to sex into somebody's head. You already control them. They yes. will come. They will come knocking at your door looking right. for salvation. You don't right. even have to chase them anymore because right. once you fuck them up from the inside, there's no way out. Whereas it's a hell of a lot harder for somebody who's busy and having wild, intense orgasms day in and day out to feel like they are a sinner in need of redemption or mm. some shit. Yeah. It's just not the way it works. Good sex 
empowers you. Good sex makes you feel yep. fearless. Good sex makes you feel like, you know, it, it gives you a sense of self-confidence that few other things can do. And so because self-confidence is the enemy of uh, any organization that wants to control you, that's the yeah. one thing that you have to attack. Right. I mean, a byproduct of liberty. Right. You know, controlling yeah. people does not entitle liberty. And that's so. the way you do it, right? Is right. It, it, if you control people from the outside, they're going to resent it and they're going to try to fight you. If you can get inside their head, they are fucked up and they will look for you to control them because they need it. Or and they feel they sprinkle do. some fear in there. Yeah. Now you really got something well, going. Yeah. That's, that's the way you do it, right? And it's funny because, I mean, some of this stuff goes so deep that even when people understand it intellectually, it's still we're so conditioned. Like the whole monogamy thing, I remember I had this discussion a lot with, well, first is one of my favorite discussions when I want to just got on people's nerves and push the buttons because they never have good arguments to back them up so they're like squeamish and running around and but even when it's not i don't want to just be a pain in the ass when it's a real serious conversation i remember now with already like every major relationship i've ever had i've had that discussion usually at the get-go thinking where my usual standard is monogamy sucks and it doesn't make any sense for this and this and that reason and and usually because the person I'm having this discussion with is somebody who obviously I like her and she likes me, so we must have something in common. They usually get it. They agree on a philosophical level. But there's the gap between getting it philosophically and say, you know what, it actually does sound great and it does sound like it could work in a better world. Not in a world, I can't pull it off. I get it. You know, if that's what you want to do, you should. I remember my wife, that's pretty much what she said. She said, you know what? I like your, you know, I completely agree. It makes sense to me. And if uh, if that's what you want to go for, I think you should. And I respect it 110%. I can't do it. So if you want to be with me, different story. And I'm not telling you because you're wrong. I'm telling you because that's just what I'm comfortable with. Right. And at that point, it was a choice between the person and the ideology. And I was like, ah, fuck, okay. You know, you know I can, philosophically, I can like this approach better, but who cares? This is not about philosophical. I'll monogamy with you, fine. So, I mean, my opposition is more mental. In a lot of situations, I've been in situations where monogamous relationship, and I've been totally fine with it. And, um, you know, doesn't mean you stop uh, liking other people because that's obviously physical. You know, you can restrict action. You're certainly not going to restrict thoughts or ideas, obviously. But a lot of people I've seen have this gap between the mental level where they get it and it makes sense to them. And yet there's so much conditioning surrounding it, particularly toward women. Because toward men, there's the attitude of like, oh, boys will be boys, so what if you're screwing around kind of thing? But toward women, there's been such an emphasis on controlling female sexuality that there's so much negative feedback if you don't fall in line that most women are freaked out by it. And rightfully so, because, you know, they've had been in the target for so long. Sucks. But not in Africa. Well, different parts yeah, of Africa. Different, uh, I was or, actually just being a no, right. dick. I mean, <laughs> no, the, the right. level of insanity with the genital mutilation and things like that. Well, I mean, that's, that's North Africa. Yeah, a whole yeah. different. Yeah, but but you're right. I mean, there are massively different uh, levels of shame uh, involved with sexuality in different parts of the world. Uh, my wife's from Africa, and I remember one time we were. Uh, I was working on the book, and and there was uh, something in there about. Uh, you know, forty percent of all women um, 
rarely or never have orgasm mm-hmm. during intercourse. And I said, "Sorry, forty percent." Yeah. Yell it. What? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, and I said, but you know, not not with Fabio. Huh? <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I just want to say, of course, not when Fabio's in the house. So it's, she might have read that, and and, uh, and then you just give her a nod and say, "Yeah, you should feel lucky, right?" <laughs> well, she so she's from Africa, and and she's a psychiatrist, and did all this research and sexual uh, behavior there, and and I I read that, and I said to her, 40 percent." I said, "What what's the number in Mozambique where she's from?" And she said. Phew. Around zero, yeah. <laughs> it's like really it's just, not yeah. tolerated. No, well, it, it, no, it's around. the point is that the women, uh, the reason a lot of women have trouble with orgasm is the shame that they're disconnected from their bodies, they're disconnected from the pleasure, and they don't, they they can't allow themselves to feel that. And we talk about some interesting research in the book showing how disconnected a lot of women are from their own genitals, like. Yep. You know, where they're, they show women different um, uh, videos and they, there's a dial on the table where the woman is supposed to – and they do this with men too – where you indicate how turned on you are by what you're seeing, right? And But at the same time, they've got um, uh, instruments that are measuring genital blood flow. And so then they compare what your body is turned on by and how aware of it you are. And what they find is that men are like, yeah, that turns me on. The dick gets hard. They, they you know, up to 10 or some go up to 11. Um, but, the, uh, <laughs> but, the, uh, but a lot of the women, they don't know that they're turned on. So they're registering a two or a three, but their body is like, no, no, you're into that, That's honey. Pretty good. Yeah. So I'm almost afraid to take this test. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can hook you up, uh, but uh, they uh, yeah that disconnect is a lot less prevalent in places like Africa, Brazil, you know. So it's it's interesting how deeply cultural that stuff is. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, and that is, and it's like one of the things is like how do we get out of it? And I guess you're right. You know, we're not getting you know nobody tomorrow because we decide we know we're gonna change it now. The yeah. whole universe, as much as I would love to be the universal dictator who make people fall in line, not going to happen. So it's. But, uh, but I think there is a generational shift, and mm-hmm. I think it's happening really quickly now. It's accelerating. Mm-hmm. So I do think, I mean, I, when people tell me that, I've had that same conversation with people where they say, yeah, I get it, but that's, right. not, my, that's not my life. I don't. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for that because one of the things we write about at the beginning of Sex at Dawn is food. And because I, I thought food was a good way to, to get people to think about this stuff, that there are things that yep. feel very natural or unnatural. And it's very intimate. You know, it's in your mouth. It's in your body. And you think it's uh, sort of a universal thing, but then you realize it's completely arbitrary and cultural. So, for example, we talk about um, people in um, in Australia who eat these grubs, witchetty grubs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see one. It's like a big, fat, white worm. It's fucking, you know, you are not going to eat that, right? right? And yet people who do eat them say it tastes like mozzarella cheese and, you know, there's very little fat and it's, you know, highly nutritious. And it's like there is no good reason not to eat that thing. Right. But except that you grew up thinking that's gross, right? right? So I'm the same. I mean, I'm, I, I wish I were like Anthony Bourdain eating boars, assholes and stuff, you know? <laughs> but I'm kind of squeamish about food, right. you know? I actually yeah. am. And I've lived all over the world. I've eaten bugs. I've eaten all sorts of shit. But I don't like it, you yeah. know? 
And so that's I can relate to those people. You right. know, it's like, hey, I get it. Sure, I get it. Crickets are good food, but that doesn't mean I want to sit down to a plate full of them. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think if you grow, if you have kids, then mm-hmm. and you've got that attitude, and you understand, it's like, oh, it's not that crickets are disgusting. It's mm-hmm. that I don't get it because of the way I was raised. Then if your kid is like, hey, Dad, I like crickets. You're not going to say, hey, that's wrong. Don't do that. You're going to say, all right, cool. You right. like crickets. And so then in a few generations, we've I mean, moved on. And I mean, know? that's you mentioned kids. That's exactly mm-hmm. how it happens because, I mean, most babies just start wildly masturbating very early on. And a lot of the feedback that they get really quick is right. – don't do that. Right. You know, it's like, that's bad. You shouldn't. And it's not even that they know. It's not like, this is not giving some weird pedophilic justification, like, oh, babies are sexual. And it's like, it's like natural. You know what I mean? It's like, they don't even know what the fuck they are doing, but they are playing with their sexuality by saying, huh, that feels kind of weird. Let me yeah. play with that a little. What yeah. does that do? You know, it's sure. like, and the feedback that they get in a lot of cases is don't touch, don't do it. And, and the thing that's funny about toddlers is that they are they don't have all the mental bullshit in their head yet it's about to be placed in their head so they are totally and completely honest in a way that's gonna disarm you you know it's yeah. like you see the toddler who is uh, masturbating like crazy and you're like Great, you can't do that you know it's like and i would look at you and like why yeah it makes me feel good and yeah. you're like it's because yeah. you're right i'm out of arguments you win i don't know what to say to the- you're right yeah. you know what the fuck it's just pure mental bullshit that's placed on and but it's placed so early it's placed before even we're talking about teenagers it's placed from the get-go that by the time you are a teen or even thinking you know sex ed courses or anything like that it's already inside your head you know yeah. And you have picked it up either directly or indirectly from so many social sources <laughs> that it definitely is going to affect how you relate to all this stuff. That's why we need the goddess of mercy, the hooker teacher, who will shed it all away and teach you the good ways. You ever heard of Philip Larkin, the British poet? I know the last name, but I don't he's, remember. He's the... quite famous. He has a poem that says, uh, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. Mm-hmm. They fill you with the faults they had, then add some extra just for you. There's <laughs> <laughs> something like misery. Man passes on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. So get out early while you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Is this what you are reciting to your uh, workmates while gutting salmon yeah, in Alaska? Yeah, exactly. I exactly. Say. I must have had some tequila. Okay, so you got a beer appointment coming up soon because we haven't given you enough alcohol as is. And uh, <laughs> so before you need to run, and I really think like at some point... Let's do round two because there's even more stuff that I want to chat about with you. There's like a never ending. We just, by the way, finished uh, a couple of days ago. We recorded an episode for um, Chris' own podcast. That uh, uh, you want to tell people a little bit about your own podcast? Oh yeah, it's it's called Tangentially Speaking, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, because that's my interview style, as as you may have noticed, (laughs) I tend to go off on tangents, (laughs) right? And and yeah, it's it's uh, it's fun. I, I, I much like you, I think I got turned on to podcasting by Duncan Trussell. Yep. Uh, we went out for a beer after I did his, and he was like, "Hey, man, why aren't you doing a podcast?" <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very well done, by yeah. the way. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, but uh, got yeah, it was really fun. And uh, so yeah, I started, you know, because I, I I know some pretty interesting people, and uh, they seem willing to chat. So yeah, I've done interviews. I mean, some famous people like mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, the the great uh, alternative medicine guy, and. Um, you know, uh, Tal Ruspoli, who I mentioned to you earlier, who's right. an Italian prince and a film director, a very, very cool guy, flamenco guitarist. Um, but then also people you've never heard of, like uh, I interviewed a woman um, who's a psychotherapist by day and a dominatrix by night. Nice. Really interesting woman and, and really opened up about uh, how she got into it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's Tangentially Speaking. It's on iTunes and it's uh, also available at uh, feralaudio.com. Perfect. And we recorded an episode. Uh, I was on... I guess I was his guest and now he's our guest so we traded on that and uh, so it's, uh, I think maybe March or something is when you're going to release yeah. that one yeah I've got a bunch of them like in the pipeline already sure. because I thought I was going to be moving to some little island in the Atlantic right. and so I tried to like bank as many interviews as I could and then uh, now we've decided not to move to the little right. island for a while so now I'm, I've got a backlog well that's um, good but yeah in case so if you guys want to hear more of this type of conversation you can check the conversation we had the other day uh, yeah, that's going to be, be released March. in a few weeks yeah. and then maybe we'll do it would be great to do round two because there's more stuff that to chat on is, this is definitely a fun conversation mm-hmm. speaking of which I all the Three million topics that you can talk about, and uh, sex at dawn itself, the book, and the thesis, and all its ramifications, which are many and varied. I have a feeling this should be a documentary series directed by Pete McCormick. I think this would do it very well. And uh, yeah, that's a good idea. We should call it Sex Drive. You know, that's brilliant. Yeah. I can't believe some producer hasn't picked it up yet to give yeah. you a million-dollar contract with HBO yes. any day now. Yeah, actually, yeah. that's why I'm not moving to the Little Island in the Atlantic because I'm pitching this. Uh, right, I'm talking to people in LA about possibly doing a TV show. Yeah, yeah. The idea there is to like do a TV show about sex that's uh, non-judgmental, mm-hmm. open-minded, has some, you know, scholarly academic chops behind mm-hmm. it, but also a good time. Yep. Um, you know, make people laugh and Wait, scholarly, th- academic, and a good time. Exactly. How is that even wow. possible? Exactly. Like, I mean, it's what we were talking right. about earlier. You know, the scholars are going to scoff, and of course, you know, but fuck it. I mean, you know, that's. I think. You know, I was talking to a, a TV executive um, guy who's retired now, but uh, he said. He said, look, you're gonna, you want to do a TV show about sex, it has to either be purely scientific and dry mm-hmm. or, you know, sweaty people slapping against each other. It, it can't. There's nothing in between. And I said, I'm sorry, man. I think you're wrong about yeah. that. I, you know, maybe, you know, in your day, that's right. how it was. But I think at this point there are a lot of smart people, open-minded curious and they want to learn and they want to laugh while they learn right you know and what i always say is you know think of i think of my favorite professors in college Mm -hmm. they weren't the dry old men they were like having fun they were passionate they were interested you could see that this shit was important to them you know they they were naked in a way 
And, you know, I imagine that's the kind of teacher you are. It's I'm like, always naked when I teach. Naked. So, yes. Yeah, always naked. Plain the, red hot chili yeah. pepper. The, the, <laughs> that's why they call him the bare-ass historian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you are a um, TV boss and you really don't know what to do with the few million dollars that you're passing from your right hand to your left hand at this moment, this man needs it. Right. Please hook him up. Well, Where? and you too. I mean, while yes, we're doing this, you've got a TV it. show yeah. with the same guy. Exactly. I mean, it's funny. We both, that's yeah. sort of how we met each other. Yeah, yeah, Pete. yeah, Pete McCormack is a god, and we pray to him daily. So it's all. Uh, the where can people? So in case when the people have these millions of dollars that they want to give you, <laughs> where can they find you? Uh, well, uh, sexatdawn.com. There's a contact uh, link there, so people can get to me through there. Cool. Uh, yeah, and, and you do Twitter and stuff. Uh, yeah, Twitter. Yeah. I'm at uh, Chris Ryan PhD. Cool. Wasn't there another website you're talking about too? The, uh... Oh, the, yeah. I'm working on a. Uh, what is funny story with this? What happened was I I did a publicity tour for the book, and it was like every writer's dream because, as we were talking about earlier, publishers these days don't pay for shit, right? So there's no no publicity tour, right. no nothing. Um, but what happened was that people wrote to me from various cities saying, "Hey, w- what would it take to get you to come and give a talk here?" Right. And so I said, you know, whatever, a couple thousand bucks and you guys, you know, set up the, you know, rent a theater and print tickets and deal with all that shit and I'll come, you know. So what happened was that in in uh, Chicago, uh, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, San Francisco, independent groups of people set up a speaking gig for me. So I That's awesome. And like we sold out a 650 seat theater in Portland on Jesus. a rainy Wednesday night at 20 bucks a ticket to come hear me talk about wow. prehistoric sex, right? It's just it's wow. Crazy. San Francisco 450 people and we so it was like there's a lot of interest out there. And but what happened was I remember coming out onto the stage in this beautiful theater in Portland and you know I mean, there, there was a balcony and they're just full of people. And I remember thinking, and I actually said, I said, you know, it's so great to see you all here, but um, I know you're not here to see me. You know, you're here to meet each other because, you know, the kind of person who's going to come here, me talk, is going to be smart, sexy, open minded. This is a fucking dating scene. You know? I'll, I'll get my shit over quickly, but, you know, introduce yourselves. You know, say, well, let's do this. Name the firstborn after me or something. Uh, that's funny. So, uh, anyway, so after the San Francisco gig, the, one of the guys who helped arrange it, um, Andrew Sullivan's his name, he said to me, you know, you make that joke, and uh, but after the gig, all these people got in touch with me and said, how can we get this crowd together yep. again? Because, you know, there were there were people from all different, you know, there were like straight up monogamous married couples who just wanted to come and, and hear about this and they're interested in it on a theoretical mm-hmm. level, the way we were talking about earlier. There were swingers. There were p- people in the S&M scene. There were, you know, gay rights people. There were all these different people that were joined by a curiosity and an open-minded approach to sexuality. So what he said was, what if we set up a website Mm -hmm. where this community could come together? Because there's no place where they can all come together. So anyway, we we talked about it. We set up a website. It's called Kotango, K-O-T-A-N-G-O.com. And it's it's just a place for ethical, non-monogamy discussion. You can meet people. It's like there's a dating component to it and also uh, informational component. So... 
And we're also going to be having uh, regional events, parties, you know, live music. The whole Check thing. you out. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. nice. Cool. So uh, it's in beta now, but uh, it's, it's fully functional and we're just about ready to go national. Nice. Awesome. That's great. And anything else you want to throw there? I don't think so. I think that about covers We're it. We're good. Yeah. Perfect. Talk about uh, hunting animals later. Yeah, man. No, this is great. And really, there's more to go. So at some point, we should totally do round two because this is fun. Yeah. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, I don't know. So um, that's um, it. That's peace it. Cool. and happiness. Do Absolutely. something good with your Love life. You. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Thanks guys. Awesome. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. <laughs>